Okay, Hebrews 11. If you've got, uh, well, you don't have to have a Bible. I'm used to saying that. <laughs> if you have a Bible, you can open it. And, and don't feel like you shouldn't now bring your Bibles to church. Okay, that too. Because it can be very helpful to have your Bible during a sermon. And you think, oh, I need to turn to John and see what this has to say about that. Please do that. I know most of you have it on some electronic thing and you're flipping through your screen or whatever. That's fine. Um, turn to page 6 in your bulletin and follow along. Hebrews uh, 11. And, and you young theologians, as you listen to this passage, it's not a long one. This is about three people who believed God. One of them is particular. They're all unusual, but one of them especially because he didn't die. Notice which one of them didn't die, you young theologians, as you pay attention to this. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Lord, we pray that you would be with us. Would you give us your spirit, enliven our hearts and our minds, our souls, that we might hear and believe your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Moments ago, you heard the reading from Scripture. And by the way, those of you who are attuned to the details of your order of worship, you noticed probably that we called the the reading from Genesis 5 a New Testament reading. And you probably were thinking, there's a trick to that. What do they have in mind? No, that was a mistake. (laughs) I don't know something that you don't. Genesis is in the Old Testament. That was just a little detail that slipped by as we were preparing this expanded bulletin. So forgive us for that. But Genesis 5 was this reading of the genealogy that Jim Pachta drew the short straw on this morning and got all the names and the ages and all this stuff. Jeff Murray got off really easily last week, didn't you, Jeff? So this reading of the genealogy is not the only one in the Bible. These readings in the Old Testament are, are oddly enough, well, maybe not oddly enough, sadly enough, an obstacle to faith for some because you read these, and it's even an obstacle to Christians as you read these, you listen to it, you hear it as an audience, and you think, why are they reading this, these names and these ages and all this stuff? What's the deal? Why is this here? I mean, what's up with the ages? Nobody lives to be 969 years old. Did he really? And how do we figure all that stuff out? And 
why is it all about the men? I mean, daughters are mentioned, but only the men are named. They seem to be so prominent. Is the Bible just a socially reject, regressive document that just doesn't understand the 21st century? I don't need to know all this stuff. Just get to the point. I mean, don't you feel that sometimes when you hear a passage like that or when you go to read one? What's the deal with this? Well, here's the point. The Bible is a history of two families. Do you know that? The Bible is a history of two families and the way that each approaches the the ultimate questions of life. The questions like, who am I and why am I here? What's wrong with me and what am I supposed to be doing? And is there a God? And if there is, how can I relate to him? The ultimate questions of life, the Bible is about these two families and the way that they approach those matters. And it begins, of course, with the history of God's creation and with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and explains God's love for them, his relationship with them, his calling of them to serve him as vice regents in the world in which he's placed them, and of his generosity with them, his, his children. And then, of course, it tells about their rebellion, their desire to make their own way, to be their own king and queen in the world, and the consequences that follow, and God's gracious promise to cover over their shame. And then it tells the story of their children. Adam and Eve had sons, Cain, and Abel, and Seth, and the oldest one killed the middle one, leaving just Cain and Seth. More about that conflict in a moment. But leaving Cain and Seth, and if you were to go back and read Genesis chapter 4, it tells you the story of one of these two families, the family of Cain. You heard Genesis 5, the family of Seth. The, The family of Cain is this sort of thing, Basically, Cain's violence begets violence. Cain murdered his brother and lied about it. And then Cain's descendant, whose name was Lamech, took two wives. He was the first polygamist noted in Scripture. The first one to to take multiple wives, which was against God's created order. And then Lamech boasted of a murder, of putting to death someone who had offended him. And he boasted about it. This is the violence that was begotten by Cain's violence. And then you come to Genesis 5, which you heard moments ago. And, and Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, and, and how Seth's faith begets faith in his family. Seth also had a descendant named Lamech. Maybe you heard carefully as you were listening, I'm sure, to all the names and the numbers. You heard about Lamech, whose son was Noah, and Lamech, unlike Cain's Lamech, Seth's Lamech looked forward in hope to the Lord delivering him and his people from the pains of the fallen world. He looked forward in faith. And so the history begins to unfold. One, answer, one family answering ultimate questions with self-righteous pride and arrogance and their effort and the other family answering life's ultimate questions with gospel faith. The Old Testament focuses on the bloodline of Seth's family in order to show how God would ultimately provide 
final covering for his people in Christ. But we recognize, too, throughout Scripture that God's gracious promise is not just about a bloodline. It's about faith. And it's this gospel faith that these Hebrew readers of this letter had to understand in order to withstand what they faced in their circumstances. And so the writer turns to these ancient believers to see the ancient aspects of their gospel faith to encourage these people and to encourage us as well, one of which is the gratitude of faith, Abel. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what's the story of Cain and Abel? Genesis 4, Adam and Eve, they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain was the oldest one, and and Cain was a farmer. The, The scripture tells us that Cain worked the soil, he grew the crops. Abel, the younger one, kept the flocks. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a rancher, I guess you could put it that way. And eventually, Scripture tells us that Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not. So Cain got angry, and in jealousy and rage, killed his brother and hid his body, evidently, and then lied about it. Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. How? Why did Abel gain divine acceptance and Cain didn't? Is it just because God didn't like his vegetables? I mean, maybe God was a steak guy, but didn't want the potato, right? I mean, Abel brought him a fresh kill, and Cain brought him celery. I don't don't know what your preferences are for your dining table, but a steak might be more appealing. Is that why God rejected Cain? I don't think so. I don't think that's it. Because as you look, Through the the centuries of the unfolding of redemptive history, what you see is that God isn't interested in what his people offer as far as things. He wants their hearts. Centuries later, God would ask Moses and the Israelites a leading question. He would say, why do you think I chose you? Do you think that it was because you're more numerous than all the other nations? Do you think that it's because you're more powerful than all the other nations? Do you think, Moses, that it's because you have more potential and I'm going to get a return on my investment with you? No. I chose you because I chose you. I placed my love on you because I placed my love on you in grace. From the very beginning, the gospel was all about Grace. Adam and Eve knew that. From the very beginning, God gave them a covering to cover their shame. From the very beginning, Cain and Abel, their sons, were given not law, but grace. That's the gospel that they had heard already. Now, Cain and Abel show two different ways of answering the ultimate questions. 
There are really three different ways of doing it. Cain and Abel show two of them very clearly. One way is the irreligious way. That is, for those who say, there's really nothing bigger than me in the world, and so I don't need to prove myself. I can do whatever I want. I don't need any higher power or whatever to accept me. That's the irreligious way. That's not Cain or Abel. Cain is the religious way. There is something bigger than me, something more powerful than I am, and so I need to obey, I need to do something good in order to gain acceptance from the one who's bigger than me. That's the religious way. And then there's the gospel way. God is bigger than I am. He made me. And He accepts me by grace. Therefore, I obey Him with gratitude. So three ways, the irreligious, the religious, and the gospel way. What was it that made Abel's offering more acceptable? His faith. His faith. Cain says, I obey by my effort. God, look what I've brought to you. Now accept me. Abel says, I'm accepted by grace. Therefore, I obey with gratitude. And with gratitude... Abel brought the very best of what he had. He brought the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. He brought the the very best that he had because he was so grateful for what God had already given him in the gospel. Abel's offering is not more acceptable because it's a good cut of meat. It's a good cut of meat because Abel is grateful for the grace he's been given. Cain's offering is not unacceptable Because it's not the county fair first prize pumpkin. Cain's offering is unacceptable because he wants something in return. He's out to bargain with God. God, I'll give you this. Now what are you going to give me back? Give me some return on my investment. That's what Cain is after. It has to be in the context of all of Scripture. Cain ultimately feels guilty about killing his brother, and maybe he should... But instead of responding to grace, he lies about it and he just tries even harder. Abel believes in God's grace and so he relaxes. And all that he does, he does with gratitude. And because of that, Abel has an eternal voice to us. He says, and through his faith, though he died, Abel still speaks. Abel, I would say, speaks to us through justification by faith. That's what Abel knew I mean, in some sense, Cain and Abel are an early portrayal of Jesus' parable of the tax collector, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Abel is the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, God, thank you for your mercy to me. I'm going to bring to you the best of what I have. Oh, Lord, I can't do anything to gain your acceptance. You've given it to me by grace. Thank you. Cain is the Pharisee. God, look what I'm going to bring to you. I got my prize-winning celery. Now what are you going to give me back? They're a picture of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Abel, just following his parents, was the first to believe the gospel. And he still speaks because you know in your heart of hearts that you can't earn your way to God's acceptance. You, you can't. Abel's offering was by faith. You know, In a sense, he said, Lord, I know what you promised my parents. I know that you promised that 
that our offspring would crush the head of the serpent. I know you promised that, and I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust your promise. I trust your promise. I mean, we see it in, in liturgy. You know, any good church worship liturgy is going to reflect this. Why is it that the offering box always comes after the sermon and not before? There's a reason for that. There's a reason. Because you couldn't possibly bring enough. You couldn't bring a wheelbarrow full of money and shovel it into the box in order to gain God's acceptance. You couldn't bring enough. You know, there's a flow to any good worship service. There's gospel first and then gratitude that follows. You know, we we start with a call to worship. God calls us to worship. We don't call Him to worship. God calls us to worship. And then we pray for the Spirit to come among us and we sing and we confess our sins to Him and we receive from on high an assurance of His pardon of us. And then we pass peace among each other because we have peace and reconciliation with God. And then we hear, Lord willing, the gospel preached to us. Now, our sermons aren't intended to be a a sales pitch. I couldn't sell a new car at a used car price. I'm I'm not a salesman. I couldn't sell something. That's not the point of a sermon. The point of a sermon is simply to hold the gospel out, and then we respond in gratitude. Any good liturgy will show that. Cain doesn't get this. Cain says, I obey by my effort. Now God accept me because of it. And Christians do this all the time. I mean, it's, it's kind of our default mode. It's what we, we do. But it's not the gospel. You know, you have a lot of Cain in you. You recognize that, don't you? You see the ways that you, you want to be like Cain. Cain wants to be presentable. Abel wants to be forgiven. Cain expects something in return, but Abel is grateful for what he's been given despite himself. Why do you struggle to show the gratitude of faith? It's because you don't really believe that God deals with you by grace. There's not just the gratitude of faith, but there's the challenge of faith he he leads on into through his family history here. Verse 5, he says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Enoch is one of the most mysterious characters in Scripture. That should kind of go without saying just by reading that verse, right? He was an odd one. And Enoch's claim to fame, besides the fact that he didn't die, is that he was the father to Methuselah, who is the longest living character in Scripture, 969 years Methuselah was Enoch's son, it tells us. And Enoch accepted the challenge of faith in that he was willing to stand against the rebellious spirit of his age. One of the challenges of faith is that it requires courage because you believe something bigger. You believe that God is at work, and so you can have courage. The Hebrews needed courage. Enoch was commended as having pleased God. We're not really told how. Enoch is, again, one of the most mysterious characters in Scripture. We can kind of speculate a little bit. Jude, of all places, gives us a little bit of help. In that odd, little-known New Testament, very brief letter of Jude, back at the end near Revelation, Jude writes this when he's writing about false teachers. Jude says this, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, 
prophesied about false teachers saying, the Lord will come to judge to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they've done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against God. Now Jude is quoting a book, it seems. Most Bible scholars seem to think he's quoting a book which had appeared decades before Christ was born, a book called Enoch. It was a spiritual book among many spiritual books, and it didn't make its way into the Bible. It wasn't accepted as canon in Scripture, and it's not that Jude necessarily thought that it should be. That's not so much the point. It was a highly regarded text, and it makes sense that Jude would allude to this sort of thing Maybe not knowing exactly what Enoch had done, because we're not told in Genesis. But it makes a little bit of sense, because Enoch was the grandfather of Noah. His son was Methuselah, the great-grandfather of Noah. His son was Methuselah. And again, this is a little bit speculative. We don't really know exactly. Maybe what the, the, the name Methuselah means, and different commentators will put different slants on it. One possibility is that Methuselah means when he dies, it will come. When he dies, it will come. Now, if you do the math, some of you are inclined to do it and go back to a Genesis 5 genealogy, all the ages, and begin to do some math. If you do the math, you begin to recognize that Methuselah lived 969 years. That's a long time. But the year he died is when the flood came. In a sense, you might say that by faith, Enoch named his son. When he dies, it will come. Because he knew, preaching against the rebellious spirit of his age, he knew God would come to judge the world, and he declared it by the name of his son. Gospel faith is a challenge because you have to stand against the evil of the world. In campus ministry, I was an RUF campus minister before I came here, and, and campus ministers in RUF often would kind of reflect together on, on you know, guys serving in campus ministry for some years and then leaving to go do something else, church-related usually. And why, why would a guy leave a campus ministry? Why would, he, why would he leave RUF? We all had our reasons. And ultimately, you know, God calls you to something else. But we recognize that there were typically two avenues that would lead to our exit. And both of them were mistakes. One was that we would come to despise the culture of the campus on which we served. And the other one is that we would come to imbibe the culture of the campus on which we served. Either we came to to despise it, to hate it, to ridicule the culture of the campus, and so we just said, I've got to get away from here. That was kind of my deal. Or we came to the point of imbibing, of drinking it all in and absorbing the culture and reveling in it. I love the culture of all the campus stuff. And it would lead to our exit because it would make us ineffective. The same goes in the church. The same goes for every Christian. You're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? And if you despise the culture in which you live, you become ineffective. If you imbibe the culture in which you live, you become just a part of it and ineffective. That's the challenge of of faith. And yet, 
Enoch not only stood against, but he walked with. He, he walked with God because another part of the challenge of faith is that it requires humility. This is all we really know about Enoch. This is what it tells us. He walked with God. And that was all. It requires humility. Faith does. You have to stand against the sin of your own heart if you are reconciled to God, if you're at peace with God, if you walk with God. You know, one of the the great promises of Scripture in the Old Testament, it carries right on through to the very end of Scripture, is that God told His people, He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will live with you and what? I will walk with you. What does that mean? Evidently, there's some difference between His living with and His walking with. And you should know that that's the case in your own experience. It's, it's a different thing to just live with someone than it is to really walk with them. About 10 years ago, I heard a lecture by a theologian talking about some things related to this. And he made the point, he said that in marriage, eventually after a little while, he said, I don't know how long it takes, it's a little different for each marriage, but eventually you stop acting, and you just start being yourself, right? Because at some point, you can't keep pretending. You can't keep putting on airs. You can't keep dating and dressing up to be together. Eventually, you're just going to be who you are, and that person is going to see you for who you are. Eventually, you don't just live together. You walk together. You're vulnerable to each other, and you're humble with each other. Your spouse knows you better than your neighbors do. Your children know you better than you think they do. Just a few days ago, I I had a conflict with one of my own kids. I, I falsely accused. And in anger and frustration, I, I sent them all to bed. Go to bed. I'm done. A little time later, I began to realize and came to understand that I had falsely accused. I didn't have all the information. And we were living together that night, but we weren't walking together. Someone who's more precious to me than anyone. And yet we were broken apart. And the next day, I had to, in humility, go to my child and say, I was wrong, and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And then we could walk together again. The challenge of faith is that it requires humility. When Mary and I were dating and, and get, you know, getting ready to get married, she would refer to me as, Colin is my friend who knows me well and likes me anyway. In marriage, as you're walking together, you know each other well and you love each other anyway because you're vulnerable to one another. Enoch walked with God. How did he do that? How could he walk with God who knew everything about his soul? He could do it by faith. What did Enoch believe? All he had to believe was that a seven-generation promise from his great-great-great-great-grandparents that God would crush the head of the serpent, that God would overcome the effects of the fall, that God would cover his shame... And by faith, Enoch was humble before God. You know, you and I, we crumble under the challenge of faith because we just don't really believe that God cares about sin. 
and because we just don't really believe that God knows us well and he loves us in Christ by grace. The third one is the endurance of faith. This writer moves on down the the family line. And again, this is the family that lived by faith. Verse 7, he says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. Okay, Genesis 5 tells us a little bit about Noah, but not too much. He tells us that Noah was born to a man named Lamech who named him and said, Maybe through this one, God will deliver us from the effects of the fall, looking forward in faith to the hope of the gospel. In Genesis 6, we read a little bit more about Noah, of course. Noah found favor, grace with God, and therefore he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. He too walked with God, we're told. Now, I seriously doubt that Noah looked like Russell Crowe. And I'm sure he didn't have an Australian accent. You know, he just didn't have the the Hollywood sort of package, I'm sure. Noah was just an ordinary man. In fact, Noah was a binge drinker who believed God. That's who Noah was. And Noah shows us that gospel faith is not just believing in God, but it's believing God. It's believing what he says Um, I mean, we just read from Enoch that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who ask him. We have to believe in God, but you must believe what he says. Noah did that. He believed God, Noah did, and so he spent 120 years doing something utterly impractical. Now, we don't really know exactly how long it took to build the ark, but Genesis 6 verse 3 gives some indication of of God saying, I'll give man 120 years in the way that he is, but that's all that I'm going to give him. Noah built an ark, and so he did. It took him a a century to build this ark, and it had to. He didn't have a chainsaw. He didn't have electricity. He didn't have any of the tools that we would have used to do such a thing. And even if we tried to undertake it, it would be a pretty hard task, wouldn't it? He had an axe and some tools, and he built an ark. It took him 100 years. And in His enduring faith, he condemned the world. That's not that Noah pointed his fingers at the world saying, you're so bad, look at me, I'm so good. That's not the point. But by this, that is by this public act of building an ark, this enduring faith, he demonstrated the world's posture against God. He made it clear that the world was opposed to God. In a sense, the world condemned itself because of what Noah was doing. A Puritan preacher wrote about it this way. He said, The the people didn't tremble in fear until the water reached the rooftops. Noah trembled in fear when God did but speak. In reverent fear, Noah spent a century doing something completely impractical to the world. And the world must have thought him a fool. You're building an ark in the middle of the plains... What is an ark anyway? What are you doing, Noah? You're a fool. Here in Dallas, there's a a group called the Institute for Creation Research. These people are PhDs in astrophysics and geology and biology and chemistry and medicine. PhDs, they have credentials 
that the world will look upon and think, well, you're an expert, you must know something. But they've given themselves to the research of creation science, as they call it. Now, I don't know what all goes into all that stuff, but what you have to know is that by declaring that and siding themselves with such a position, all of these people have committed professional suicide. The world would not give them any credibility, PhD, whatever, because what you believe is foolishness. And they've given themselves to something completely impractical because in reverent fear they believe what God has said. Why would you give money to mercy ministry? It will give you no return on your investment. It won't. That money's gone. Why would you do that? Why would you defend the unborn in a culture that has simply called it choice? Why would you do that? Because the culture... Uh, you know, 99% of Americans are for that. Why would, you, why would you do that? Because in reverent fear, you believe. In reverent fear, you believe what God has said. And gospel faith by enduring shows by contrast that the world is postured against God. But by his actions, Noah not only condemned the world, but, but he inherited eternity By this, it says, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, there's a little bit of irony here if you listen carefully to it. By this, that is by building the ark, by obeying God, he inherited the righteousness that comes by faith. By his actions, he inherited. No, don't get stumbled up with that. Don't get confused by by that. Because you don't inherit anything based on what you do. You inherit something. You become an heir based on what somebody else has already done for you. And Scripture is clear about that throughout. What did Noah do? He built an ark. He built a boat, a huge one, apparently. And over the course of a century, he accepted the ridicule of his neighbors who surely saw what a foolish thing he was doing. Over the course of a century, he labored in back-breaking sweat to build an ark as God had told him to do. And then after a century, God said to Noah, get in. And he got in. You see, when you become a Christian, in a sense, the Holy Spirit says to you, get in. Get in. Because the way of salvation is not your actions. The way of salvation is your covering. It is where you have to hide. Adam and Eve had a covering. God gave them skins to hide their shame. Noah had a covering. He hid in the ark. God said to him, get in. Now you have to recognize that all of Scripture in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of a greater promise to come. The promise was there at the very beginning. But it just unfolds over the course of time. Noah is no different. He built a boat. And God said to Noah, get in. And over the course of time, what we see from this one family of faith, that out of this family came one, Jesus, who is the ark. Do you see that? Do you recognize that Jesus is the ark? The ark that Noah built out of wood and rudimentary tools on the plains 
foreshadows the coming of Christ. God says to you, get in. Get in. You inherit eternity not because of what you do or don't do. You inherit eternity because of what covers you. There are two families here. In Genesis 5, two families, Cain and his line, and Abel, or Seth and his line, two families, and two ways of answering life's ultimate questions. One of them says, I obey, now accept me. The other one says, I'm accepted by grace. Thanks be to God. And so through faith, I obey. Gospel faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the ancients received their commendation, and the aspects of that faith remain. From the beginning and still, gospel faith responds with gratitude. From the beginning and still, gospel faith faces the challenges both of your world and of yourself. And from the beginning and still, gospel faith endures in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give to us gospel faith. Would you cause us by your Spirit to believe, to trust and recognize that in Christ we have a covering in which we have life. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.